Welcome to the new WellMed Radio, a service of WellMed Medical Management. Over the next half hour, WellMed Radio will educate you about the health and wellness of adults everywhere. Co-hosts Dr. Joshua Beck and veteran broadcaster and attorney Ron Aaron will share information to improve your health and well-being. Here are Ron Aaron and Dr. Joshua Beck. Well, thank you very much, and we appreciate you listening to WellMed Radio. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Dr. Joshua Beck, board certified in family practice, a WellMed physician, and you find him at the WellMed Clinic at Loop 410 in Centerview, and he is always looking for new patients. Always. Not that you're killing the old ones off. You have room for new patients. We have room for growth at the clinic in general, so yeah, any new patient that'd be willing to come and see me or any one of my colleagues would be great. One of the things I want to talk about, and you had brought this up off the air, uh, there are a lot of folks who may not realize that just sleeping can put their health at risk. It can, you know, and one of the things that we talk about is sleep apnea. Uh, And so uh, sleep apnea is uh, uh, basically a condition where your airway kind of collapses at night, everybody, you know, all the muscles in your body kind of relax at night when you go into sleep and you're going into that deep sleep, the muscles kind of relax, the blood pressure drops, the heart rate drops. Um, but uh, for certain people, you know, their airway can collapse to the point where they stop breathing. Uh, literally. When, literally. And when they stop breathing, then that's what we call apnea uh, or lack of oxygenation uh, to the brain and to the body. And uh, basically, that uh, puts people at risk for other things. Uh, and oftentimes, it's un, uh, you know, people don't realize it uh, because you're asleep. <laughs> so how are you going to know that you uh, don't breathe at night if you're asleep? Uh, don't we have an autonomous system in our little brain that says, hey, whoa, you need to be breathing? We do. And, 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 and you know, in uh, layman's terms, that's called uh, snoring. So yes, uh, that is when you uh, you know your your brain realizes that you're not breathing, and it sends a signal to, uh, you know to the muscles in your you know in your neck and your airway to uh, you know make you kind of you know make the muscles you know come up, come awake, and then you breathe you know, and that's the snore that you hear as as you know the muscles are kind of vibrating back and forth as your airway opens up to allow the oxygen to come in and allow you to breathe, and oftentimes you find out through significant others. Uh, because all they hear all night is snoring. <laughs> and do they know when you're not breathing? Uh, and so that's the other the other thing. So, you know, with apnea, with sleep apnea, which we're talking about, there's a triad that we usually, uh, you know, the triad of symptoms that people watch out for uh, to suspect sleep apnea. Uh, and uh, the triad is usually snoring at night, which is usually the first thing that, you know, people hear because they hear it from their significant other you know, their uh, spouse or, you know, their wife or husband or significant other or, you know, kids or whoever it may be. Uh, And the other two parts to that are fatigue, daytime fatigue, so being tired throughout the day, uh, you know, more than normal, Uh, you know, not doing any exercise and you're you're just feeling, you know, slumped over and, and, and you feel like you can suddenly fall asleep. And oftentimes it's so bad that people will just fall asleep. They could be sitting in a chair at the doctor's office waiting to go in to be seen or they could be sitting somewhere waiting, you know, for whatever, and all of a sudden they fall asleep. And then the, the, the third part of that is apnea, apnea. So apnea is where you stop breathing, and oftentimes at night, uh, you know, if you wake up, you know, you were snoring, and you wake up, and you're kind of gasping, and that's how you can realize that maybe you're having an apneic episode, or maybe your significant other 
or somebody in your household will recognize and say, you know, hey, you stopped breathing for a little bit because, you know, I couldn't fall asleep because you kept snoring. And so I was watching you and I see that you stopped breathing. Uh, and so, yes, so the, so that's the triad, the daytime fa- f- uh, fatigue, snoring, and apnea. And how dangerous is sleep apnea? And so apnea in and of itself is not the problem. The problem is the effects that it has for the body. Uh, you know, and so there's, you know, Im- immediate risk. Uh, there may be an immediate risk, you know. If, so the problem here is that, you know, you stop breathing, so your body is not doing the oxygen to carbon dioxide exchange through the lungs. And so you're getting this buildup of carbon dioxide, which is basically the byproduct of, you know, the uh, chemical uh, exchange in your lungs uh, that brings in oxygen as you breathe and then you exhale CO2 or carbon dioxide. So you get this buildup of CO2, uh, which, you know, your body wants oxygen, right? The red blood cells want want oxygen to carry those to all the organs in the body, including the brain and the heart. And so, yeah, there is a potential immediate risk, I guess you could say. Not immediate because it's not something that happens from one day to the next. But there is that risk of a heart attack, for example, due to the stress. But all, you know, the primary primary problem with sleep apnea is the long-term risk. So the risk of, uh, you know, uh, hypertension or high blood pressure, uh, increased risk of heart attack or stroke due to the uh, strain on the body from the lack of oxygenation. Um, you know, there's an increased risk of obesity. If you are obese, then this puts you at an increased risk of having sleep apnea. Why? Uh, because of that airway, because the airway will collapse because of the fat around the neck. And so, you know, when the muscles relax, then they can't really hold up, you know, the adipose tissue that's around the neck. Um, and then the airway tends to collapse. People with, you know, they're obese tend to have a larger neck. And so it's more muscle and it's more mass to collapse at night when the muscles relax. Now, to diagnose, do you diagnose it anecdotally mm-hmm. from what the patient says mm-hmm. or do you send them to some of these sleep clinics I've heard about? Yeah. So, you know, the triad is, uh, you know, the patient comes in to go see their doctor and there's, you know, they see their doctor or the advanced, uh, you know, nurse practitioner or PA. They're talking about the symptoms of being tired all the time and snoring and, and the like. And, and the next step would be for that provider, you know, if they suspect that this patient may have sleep apnea and maybe they already have high blood pressure that's difficult to control with medication. And so one of the things that may be affecting it is the apnea or they have diabetes that's not well controlled. So they will refer the patient to get a sleep study. The sleep study can be done at a sleep clinic or, you know, for example, here at WellMed, if the patient doesn't have any serious comorbidities or serious health problems like heart failure or, you know, advanced renal disease, or cancer, or COPD, then oftentimes they can get the sleep study at home. So somebody will go out to your house, connect this device so that, you know, they can monitor you overnight. Uh, And then, you know, whether it's done at a facility or at your house, uh, that device measures your sleep pattern, your breathing pattern, whether you have any apneic episodes or, you know, you stop breathing overnight. And then they'll send that off to a pulmonologist or a lung doctor who will then interpret that. It's a lung doctor or a pulmonologist that's uh, specialized in sleep medicine. And then they can determine, you know, through that whether or not you meet the criteria for sleep apnea. And sleep apnea doesn't have to be obstructive sleep apnea, which is due generally to being morbidly obese or obese. But there is a central sleep apnea, which is a little bit less common or neurogenic uh, sleep apnea, which is uh, 
a brain-related cause of sleep apnea, which might, you know, still be treated the same way, but, it, you know, you may need to go see either the pulmonologist or a neurologist for that. All right. Talk to me in a bit, uh, in, after it is diagnosed, mm-hmm. what do we do? And if you've just joined us, I want you to know you're listening to WellMed Radio. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Dr. Joshua Beck, uh, talking about diagnosing and now treating Sleep apnea. I've heard of people, and I've got a friend lives in Houston now, mm-hmm. uh, who has one of those machines. I, you know, I see ads for them on TV mm-hmm. uh, that helps combat sleep apnea. What, what does it do? Yeah, so that machine. So just to start out with the, the 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 biggest thing to do is you know if you're overweight to try to lose weight. Oftentimes, if you're really overweight and you're able to lose a whole bunch of weight, then sometimes the sleep apnea may go away or it may become less mild. Um, but uh, also helps with eliminating acid reflux. It does. It does. So lifestyle modification, you know, that should always be the primary thing. So exercise and weight loss. But the CPAP, uh, or uh, it, it's it's basically a CPAP machine is a machine that uh, you know I, I forget right right now what the definition of CPAP is, but it's basically a machine that you wear that pushes air or oxygenated, you know, air into your in, into your airway to keep your airway open at night so you don't have those episodes of apnea where you stop breathing. So that's what it is. It's so you just, wear a mask? So you wear a mask and it pushes air into your airway, uh, opens up, you know, you know, keeps the muscles open and it allows you to breathe. And there's that, you know, carbon monoxide or I'm sorry, carbon dioxide oxygen exchange happening rather than this buildup of, of, of carbon dioxide or CO2 from you having apneic, apneic episodes, uh, you know, uh, throughout the day. And so what it does is it's just it provides pressure, basically pressure to keep the airway open throughout the night. And, and- are there other ways to deal with sleep apnea? You yeah. said lose weight. Yeah, so there's two other ways or, you know, that I know of. One is a little dramatic, and it's probably is a last resort. So there's surgery. So, you, you know, you can go see an ENT. Let's say you're somebody that, you know, you can't get the apnea to go away despite wearing the mask, um, uh, this CPAP mask. Or maybe you have, uh, you know, a more complicated sleep apnea in which you also have COPD, and maybe, you, you know, you've tried another machine called the BiPAP, which, you know, breeds for you, so to speak. It's a little bit more more intertwined than just, you know, the CPAP, which pushes air, uh, you know, to keep your airway open. But let's say you've tried that. So this surgery, there's a surgery called, uh, well, the acronym is UPPP, and it's it stands for uvulopalatopharyngoplasty. So basically, they open up your pharynx so that the muscles, so there's enough of an opening in your airway so that your your muscles don't collapse at now night. Now, the uvula is the little thing that hangs down the back of your throat. Yeah. So basically, they shave. You see off. that in in yeah. cartoons a lot when you a do. cartoon character is screaming. You see that little uvula flapping. You see it moving side to side, just dangling there. Right. Yes. So yeah, that. So th- so there's that surgery that we're talking about. So they cut it out. They cut it out and they open up the airway. Do you need it? Uh, you know that that would be a, a like t- an appendix. Is there yeah. a reason we have an uvula? Yeah. So any 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 more? You know, in the past they said no. Now you know they're saying that that could be a point of where you know your immune system will send white blood cells to kind of you know, be on the, on the lookout for, you know, pathogens entering through your mouth. Um, so I would say that unless there's a reason for you to get it removed, you should probably just live with it. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, the other, the other option would be to go see a dentist and you can get a device made. So this is probably what I would go to for the patients that can't tolerate the mask would be to go see their dentist. They can get a device made that they wear kind of like a mouth guard, 
uh, so to speak, but it's a device that they wear in their mouth and it kind of helps keep their airway open. And so that would be the alternative. So you can't clench your teeth. And so you can't, uh, you know, that's a great question. So I've never actually seen the device. I just know that that's an option. Uh, but I would imagine that, yes, it somehow... Spring-loaded keeps your jaws separated. Keep, yes, so your airway doesn't collapse. Or yeah. just stick a stick in there. I guess you could do that too, you know, except right. as long as you don't choke on it. <laughs> We're about out of time for sure. this segment. Anything else we should know about sleep apnea? Very, very important. You know, it's not the apnea that's the problem. It's the risk to your health through, you know, other problems like high blood pressure, un- un- untreated diabetes, daytime fatigue, and, you know, potentially the increased risk of, you know, heart attack, stroke, heart failure, et cetera. I was thinking all that CO2 is good for the plants in your bedroom. It, it could be, you know, but you got to breathe it out, right, not leave it in the brain. Ah, good point. There you go. We're going to switch topics. It's similar It deals with an issue that faces a whole lot of folks, ED, erectile dysfunction, diagnosis, treatment. We'll talk about that next right here on WellMed Radio. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Dr. Joshua Beck. Caregiving is incredibly difficult and challenging for thousands of people caring for someone they love. It's a job that is demanding and often feels as if it's never-ending. Caregivers feel alone and lonely. That's where Caregiver SOS On Air comes to the rescue. This half-hour weekly program features nationally known gerontologist Carol Zerniel and attorney and veteran broadcaster Ron Aaron. Ooh, that's me. And remember, Caregiver SOS On Air, Saturdays at 7.30 a.m. on 9.30 a.m. The Answer, and Sundays at 12.30 p.m. on Freedom, 1160 KRDY. Sometimes you find the neatest things out while we are here off air, and I'll share that with you in a moment. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Dr. Joshua Beck. You're listening to WellMed Radio, and before we jump to ED, you mentioned something to me off the air. When I was a kid, if you had uh, uh, tonsillitis, your your little tonsils were infected, Mm -hmm. boom, out they came. Automatic. I mean, Mm -hmm. out they came. Mm -hmm. Uh, They don't do that anymore, you were saying. Yeah. So, you know, the tonsils, you know, for example, a lot of people get surgery, you know, and get their their tonsils or the amygdala is removed due to recurrent strep throat. Uh, But, you know, the tonsils will enlarge and, you know, the amygdala, you know, will enlarge. Uh, you know, with infections, you know, so there could be other infections that you can get viral infections and they may enlarge for that, you know, viral causes of a sore throat. And so they, you know, the tide has shifted, you know, so to speak, uh, you know, there's uh, surgery shouldn't shouldn't be the first option, you know, unless you're getting recurrent strep throat, because these, you know, uh, the tonsils or the amygdalas may, you know, have have an immune response, and so there oh. they may be a point of, uh, you know, the body knowing when you ingest something or you, you know you get exposed to a virus, and there that may be a good place, to, you know, to start so that your body will say, hey, you know, we're recognizing that there's a foreign pathway or a virus or you know or a bacteria that's coming. And it may be a way for the body to recognize that and fight that infection off early. And so a lot of times, um, you know, now we'll hold off on doing any kind of, you know, surgical removal of the tonsils unless somebody's, you know, getting strep throat every month, for, for example. So no rush for tonsil transplants. Not at this time, no. <laughs> Just curious, because yeah. mine were taken out. Yeah, you know, when they, when they start growing them on, on uh, you know, Petri dishes, then, you know, there may be an option for that. Now, for those who are listening who may be on the tonsil question, 
who are males, who are in their 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, who are struggling with erectile dysfunction, can't get an erection. Uh, one of the things folks say, uh, Dr. Beck, is, hey, look, folks don't have sex in their 70s and 80s. Anyhow, why worry about it? I don't have any concrete numbers, but I know I've read studies that say that, you know, that's not true, you know, and as you get older and the kids are gone, you know, and there's more time, you know, after you've been, you know, outside, you know, planting the flowers and stuff like that, you know, maybe there's a little a little bit more time to be active, right? Not to stereotype that every not old person Not to stereotype, plants. exactly, right. but, you know, or the bridge club or whatever, you know, but, you know, they actually say that that's not true, you know, you know, in the golden years or... You know the uh, uh, you know your your you know the later years I guess as you, as you get a little older you know people still you know have sex you know and um, and so you know erectile dysfunction is a common problem amongst uh, you know a large group of men. What causes it? Um, and there could be a number of causes. So, you know, well, maybe give yeah. us the ABCs on erections first. Yeah. What does it take for an erection to happen? Yeah, so an erection, you know, is a stimulus, you know, that sends a signal to the brain, that sends a signal to the penis. Uh, to engorge or fill with blood, you know, there's a release of adrenaline, there's a release of testosterone and hormones that rise that cause the erection uh, to happen, you know, but it's basically an engorgement of blood. So when there is a problem with either the, you know, the circulatory system so that, you know, uh, you can't get enough blood flow to the penis to get the erection. Well, people with diabetes might have that. Exactly. Yeah. So people with diabetes. So, you know, as we were talking about, like what, what causes it? Well, there are a number of things that can cause it. Obviously, you know, there's, there are psychological causes, you know, over anxiety or stress, you know. Can I perform? Uh, I can't perform. What do I do? Exactly. Yeah. So that, you know, that's one. And so there's an avenue to treat that. Uh, but when we're looking at an, an, anatomical causes and, you know, issues with, with the erection itself, it could be a lack of hormones, uh, you know, men with testosterone deficiency, men with various congenital, you know, ailments, or maybe they've got some kind of adrenal disease that predisposes them to have a, 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 a decreased amount of hormones uh, that triggers it. But yes, diabetes would be, would be a main, main cause. Uh, of erectile dysfunction. Hypertension could be another one. Um, another one could be peripheral vascular disease where you have too much plaque buildup in the arteries that go to the penis or the heart. You know, people that have had multiple heart attacks probably have plaque buildup throughout their body, including the penis. And that could be a reason for a lack of uh, blood flow to the yeah, penis. Yeah, but nobody wants you going in there with a roto-rooter. Yes, they typically don't do that. <laughs> or at least not that I'm aware of, but... Um, for those who may be struggling yeah. with erectile dysfunction, is this one of the issues you as the provider that, that may come up as they're leaving the office, the exam room? Oh, by the way, doctor. Yeah, so I think the, the, the main thing here is a lot of people have a stereotype where they don't want to bring it up because it's a very personal issue. You know, oftentimes, you know, for example, you know, I have, you know, a scribe that's in the room. Sometimes the scribes tend to be, you know, female. Now, for those who don't know, yeah. lots of doctors now use, uh, as in a courtroom, someone who's yeah. taking down what's being said, and that could be a male, could be a female, but they're writing everything down. Exactly. And so the problem is that sometimes that makes people uncomfortable and they don't want to bring it up. Or maybe, you know, they're just conservative and, you know, you know, people don't talk about, you know, erection problems, or maybe they're ashamed or guilty because of it. But the most important thing is to bring it up to your physician, to your provider, to the advanced nurse practitioner or PA that you see um, if you're seeing them for a routine visit and that's a problem that's been bothering you and bothering your spouse or your significant other 
then that's the first problem. The first issue is to bring it up. If you don't bring it up, then nobody's going to talk about it. So the first step is to bring it up. And then once you bring it up and the patient, you know, will bring it up to me, for example, when I see a patient, well, then we start talking about, you know, the potential causes we ask about, you know, anxiety and stress, you know, of performing, uh, you know, or maybe they, you know, maybe, you know, they have a new significant other, you know, you know, their spouse passed away a number of years, they met somebody else, and you know, now there's anxiety related to it. So, uh, you know, one avenue would be to tackle that, you know, and tackle the anxiety and the stress that's affecting the problem. But if it's more of an anatomical uh, you know, concern like, you know, uh, lack of blood flow to the penis due to various ailments like diabetes or high blood pressure, um, we have to look for causes, right? So we, you know, we generally will get a set of labs. Sometimes we'll look at testosterone, uh, you know, deficiency as a potential cause. Sleep apnea, which we just talked about, would be another another avenue oh, really? that can lead to erectile dysfunction, of course. And so that would be, so you'd, you you want to rule things out. Um, uh, and then once you, you come to the conclusion that, yes, you know, this may be related to your uncontrolled diabetes or your uncontrolled high blood pressure or your sleep apnea, you know, or whatever it may be, and you try to treat that and you still have a problem, then there are other ways to go about treating erectile dysfunction. But it is something that's potentially, uh, you know, treatable. And then another, another thing is to look at medications because there are medications, particularly antidepressants or anti-anxiety medications that patients may be on. Uh, that that may, can cause the that problem. That can cause erectile dysfunction. Now, for those of you who may join us, just joined us, we're talking about ED, erectile dysfunction, part of WellMed Radio today, and we're delighted to have you with us. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Dr. Joshua Beck. So if you're on an antidepressant, uh, is it always a problem or occasionally? Uh, it may be a In terms pro- of erectile dysfunction. Sure, you know, so it's something that's listed as a side effect, you know, and it's something that we, you know, commonly learned, you know, especially when we were in residence, you know, and we started prescribing antidepressants, you know, the common thing was, you know, to, to make sure at the follow-up that you would ask patients about their, um, you know, their ED, you know, whether they've started to have problems. So it may not be a problem for everybody, but it may be a problem for some. So when it is a problem for some, you could try to switch the antidepressants, you could try to decrease the dose, or you could try to add an an agonist, another medication to kind of help combat that, especially if they're still having symptoms of depression and anxiety rather than just increasing the dose and making the problem worse. Um, so the first step would be to look at the medications and make sure that there's not a medication that's causing the problem, and then you would want to look for secondary causes. Now, I also want to emphasize that while it's a, quote, male problem, mm-hmm. she or the significant other is affected as well. Yes, you know, and oftentimes, or at least in my experience, you know, it's not the male that brings it up. It's actually, you know, the husband and wife or, you know, significant other will be in in the room and will kind of nudge the patient and say, hey, didn't you want to bring up such and such topic? You know, and, and, and oftentimes that's the way it comes about. So, yes, you know, it can put a strain, uh, you know, on, on the relationship. And so oftentimes it's a problem for both. Now, you cannot watch TV or listen to the radio these days without an ad for either Viagra or Cialis or one of the other medications designed to treat erectile dysfunction. The ads are everywhere. Do those meds help? And so that's the problem. You know, the problem is that you see all these ads, you know, and the medications tend to be very, very expensive because they do help for the majority of people. So obviously there are potential side effects to these medications and things to watch out for, but they tend to be, you know, you know, at least in my experience, they tend to be, uh, for most people, effective. 
Um, and, and so what do they do? They help uh, increase, you know, blood flow to the penis by dilating blood vessels, which allow people to get an erection. Now, does that not affect blood flow to the brain as well? Um, I'm sure it does, you know, and I'm sure you're more alert and more awake at the time. Uh, but yes, you know, so this, you know, it doesn't just, you know, it helps kind of in, in general, you know, increase blood flow and blood circulation. Um, and, you know, uh, it is effective. But yes, uh, the problem is that for a lot of people, it's too expensive, and so they can't afford it. And so they're, you know, you know, that may be an option, coupons may be an option, you know, or looking for alternative treatments, that's not the only option. What are some of the alternative treatments? So alternative treatment would be a penis pump would be another option. Sometimes, you know, I'll see patients, you know, they can't afford the medication because their insurance won't cover it. So I end up referring these patients to a urologist. Some of the other options would be, you know, a pump. And then an alternative option to that would be sometimes there is uh, an injection that can be done to stimulate erections. It's an injection that oftentimes nobody wants. It's an injection in the penis. But this would be something you would talk about with your urologist. Obviously, if you have a testosterone deficiency problem, sometimes that may correct it. So for the injection, you have to do it yourself before sex? Uh, that, Pardon me while I shoot up. Yeah, so that is uh, that is not one that I'm well-versed at knowing, but that would be a discussion they would have with the urologist when they see the right. urologist. I'm not sure what you know exactly what you know, how, how that works, but bottom line, 30 seconds left. Mm -hmm. There is help. There is help. There is always help. Step number one is to realize that you have a problem and bring it, bring it up to your doctor because otherwise, you know, we can't help. Thank you. Dr. Joshua Beck, co-host. I'm Ron Aaron. You've been listening to WellMed Radio and we're delighted to have you here every week. Thank you for listening to WellMed Radio a service of WellMed Medical Management. We welcome your emails with suggestions and comments on this program at radio at wellmed.net. And please be sure to tune in next week for another edition of WellMed Radio.